0: Mr. Stephen Spurrier on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Very nice to have you here. Not at all. So you have a very distinguished career in wine, but
1: it really all begins at rugby school with Ben Hawkins and Hugh Johnson, right? Hugh was a couple of years ahead of me, and although I knew of him, uh, he didn't know me. And Ben was actually uh, only six months. He's six months younger than I am. He was the same outtake, intake as me, and I did know him. But I didn't really meet, I certainly didn't meet Hugh again until, I guess, the mid-60s when I was in the wine trade, and he was running the International Wine and Food Society. And since then, we're sort of always bumping into each other.
0: And it was really, you were a port man first, courtesy of a family member.
1: People ask why I went into the wine trade, and I always say that that it was Christmas Eve uh, 1954. And I was 13 years old and probably my first Christmas in long trousers, that kind of thing. I'd just gone to rugby school. And my grandfather in the family house Christmas Eve said, um, when it came time to pass the decanter, he said, I think you're old enough to have a glass of port. And so the butler gave me a glass and the decanter came round. And I was allowed to pour my own glass and I had a sip. And I said, gosh, Grandpa, what's that? And he said, Coburn's 08, my boy. And that really was a Damascene conversion, not principally because of the effects of the drink, which was absolutely extraordinary, but I collected stamps at the time. That was my hobby, like a lot of my contemporaries did. And so I could then learn about wine, read about wine, because wine was like stamps. It, it had a country of origin, it had a date, it had a place. and And so... During my days at Rugby, I began to read about wine and situated it geographically and all that kind of stuff way before I could ever drink it. And so, fast forward to I think it was 2012 when the Symington family had finally taken over Coburn's and they gave a tasting of the factory house from 1977, which was the last vintage port Coburn's had made, back to something like 1894. And there was the the 1912, the 1908, and the 1904, and Paul Symington and, and the rest of his family, they were there on the panel. each had a story. They had all the information about the vintage, and there was generally a comment from the room. And I think it was Paul who said, does anyone have a comment on the 08? So I told them that story, and it was the best wine in the room. And he did the tasting again, and I remember turning up late for that. And again, the 08 was the best wine in the room. And I, there was Paul saying, he didn't see me come in, and said, and this is the wine that inspired Stephen Spire to go into the wine business. And I said, hi, Paul. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I mean, that's what, it was that experience which got me reading about wine. And I realized I was the younger brother. And my elder brother lives now in the family house, and I knew everything was going to go to him. Therefore, I had to make my own life, but also I also knew I would be financially secure, so I could do it. So from my early teens, I was thinking what I might do with the rest of my life, and the wine trade was my first choice. Second choice was art, and I spend much more money on art than I do on wine, but um, it could have gone either way. Because you have the Goya prints in your office. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know that? Well, I did the research.
0: <laughs> right. I'm a Goya fan.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I got the taramak
0: Was there a particular reason you chose the
1: bullfighting theme? I love bullfighting. I haven't seen a bullfight in many, many years, but I did three years solid bullfighting in Spain, beginning at San Fermín in, in July, and then I did went to Madrid, and then the feria at Valencia, and then the feria in Malaga, and then the feria in Bilbao. And so for three years, 61 through 64, that's what I did. And I spoke well, adequate Spanish, and um, and then you know other things get in the way, and I stopped going to bullfights. But I'm mad about bullfighting. Well, I was mad about bullfighting. Yeah, is that influenced by Hemingway or? No, it was influenced, I think, by wanting to do things that my contemporaries weren't doing. I mean, I went to Spain; they were all going to Italy. I, I've always try to do something not to impress them but try to do something which you know other people weren't doing and bullfights was sure as hell what other people weren't doing but then there were a lot of contemporaries of mine who were doing it and a little group of us went to pamplona and we slept in the bars and all that kind of stuff the only time i've been to jail was in pamplona it was more comfortable spending a night in jail than it was spending a night out of jail
0: so, you worked in London as a, a seller hand at an old established retailer?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was taken on by Christopher's um, in March, February or March 1964. Yeah, and I worked for them for a year. They sent me to Burgundy and Champagne in September 64 for the vintage. And then it was very plain what the next step was going to be. I left, I think, on the 1st of March for. Eight months, eight or nine months, uh, to do all the wine thing from the people they bought wine. So three months in Bordeaux, one month in Burgundy, a week in the Rhone, uh, nothing in Provence, a couple of weeks in Germany, nothing in Italy. they weren't in Italy. Then I went on holiday with the girl who subsequently became my wife, and then two weeks in Hereth and two weeks in Oporto, back to Bordeaux for the vintage, back up to Champagne and back home. After that, I was completely hooked. And you ended up buying a house in France with that person that you married. We ended up moving to France. Yeah, that's a whole other story. I, but we, we got married on the 31st of January 1968, and that evening we left for France in the Golden Arrow to Paris, uh, non-residents. We, we became tax exiles because I had already bought an estate in the Provence, and um, it had a ruin on it, and I was going to rebuild the ruin. Uh, I was 27, and we. So I retired at 27, put it that way. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but then that didn't really work out. And, and then in 1970, we moved to Paris, and I said, I'll go back into the wine trade, which is all I knew about. But there was no wine trade in the structured way there, is, uh, there was in London. And I remember. With a friend of mine, we were walking up a little passageway between the Rue Boissy d'Anglas and the Rue Royale in the, in the 8th, so bang in the center of Paris, just near the Place de la Madeleine. And we passed a small wine shop called Carve de la Madeleine, and I said to my friend, that's my dream, to buy a shop like that, that I know enough about wine, and it has to be in the middle of Paris, an absolute dream. So we were going to have lunch at a restaurant, which I subsequently bought, I'll say. And so he dragged me into the shop and I looked around and after a bit, the owner, who was a lady, well-dressed, said, may I sell you something? Do you want to buy anything? And my friend said, yes, my friend would like to buy your shop. And it so happened that the shop had been on the market unofficially for a couple of years. Her husband had died a couple of years before. She was maintaining it and... It was on the market. So that's, you know, life is made out of bits of luck like that. And that was the best bit of luck I could have possibly had because it was banged in the middle of Paris. It, location, location, location. It really was amazing. And then after discussions, she was terribly nice and very polite. She had second thoughts because her husband had been really quite a good carviste and she was very much in admiration of what he'd done with the shop. And it had a little bit gone, I could sense that. But she thought that an Englishman, a young Englishman like me, who didn't speak terribly brilliant French, would, would not quite be an adequate successor to her, uh, her late husband. So I said to Madame Fougere, and it was exactly what I said to all the people I was working for in 1965, I said, I don't want to get paid. And this was a very smart move in 65, because there were several of my colleagues in Bordeaux and Burgundy who were learning about wine, and they did need to get paid. So I said I came from a privileged family. There was no financial hardship at all. And so that, in Bordeaux, allowed me to join in tastings. Often I had to clean up afterwards, but it also meant they could take me out to lunch at their chateau, where my friends were just Uh, toiling away below ground. And and so I pulled the same card with Madame Foucher. I said, look, Madame Foucher, I can understand your doubts. I'll work for you for six months. And then if after six months you feel I can honor your late husband's memory, I'll buy the shop. So we fixed the price, six months, and she really needed another worker. Uh, There I was, by that time, 30 years old, uh, always dressed in a suit, you know, handmade suits, that kind of stuff. Suddenly, going up the escalier de service, the servant staircase, because the tradesmen and delivery boys were to light up the main staircase. They are now, of course. So these narrow staircases with a wicker basket with 15 litres of valentineau and 10 bottles of water, I tell you, that's almost 40 kilos, and getting a 10-cent tip for all that. But during that time... Between October and the end of March, October 70 and the end of March 71, I got to know A the clientele, and I got to realize exactly what I wanted to do with the shop. So it was invaluable the best investment I've ever had, and not getting paid for those six months. So on April the 1st, she sold me the shop, and for the first time, I was behind the cash, the cash test I was allowed to handle money. And the following morning, I put an advertisement in the Herald Tribune, which is now the New York Times, but the Herald Tribune, which was published out of the Rue de Berry in the 8th, not far away, and the, the advertisement read, your wine merchant speaks English. And in those days, much more, the, all the American banks were there, all the American law firms were there, all the American stockbroking firms were there, all the British banks were there, and, of course, the Canadians, Australian banks were there, But, I mean, it was, everyone was there, and so... Immediately, I got an Anglo-Saxon clientele, which Madame Fougere could not possibly have got, because A, she didn't know about them, and B, they didn't know about her. So it really was, you know, a, an incredible bit of luck to be there, uh, sort of, at the right time. And also, the Go EMU magazine had been launched two or three years previously, the Nouvelle Cuisine was just beginning, there was a little bit of a revolution going on. And the social status of a carviste, as we were called, a wine shop owner, uh, was, with few exceptions, little more than that of a petrol pump attendant, because people came into my shop and with an empty bottle and said, fill it up. And we had, we had tanks at the back of the shop, and they pumped down Van air, and um, that was something I didn't want to have anything to do with. And so the second day, the representant, the salesman from the Valor Ordinaire Company, Prefontaine, good company, comes in and he said, I've bought the shop and I hope we can continue. I said, all the tanks are going. I said, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to do any bottling anymore. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Spurrier, you'll lose half your clientele. I said, that's the half I want to lose.
0: Because you started buying from producers
1: and offering yeah, yeah. chateau bottled items. Yeah, I mean, Madame Fougere didn't buy. Uh, her husband certainly would have gone to the vineyards. Madame Fouget was not. She was a bourgeois woman. She was very elegant. She she would not have gone to the vineyards. So, and that's there's nothing wrong in that because the representant, the salesman, came to her. But I'd already a through my being in France got to know a lot of lot of producers. And B, during the time in the south of France, I'd stayed in touch a little bit with wine. I went, to, got myself into the, the Froid d'Orange at Orange. Uh, I went to the Hospice de Beaune in '68. The only time it was cancelled. In fact, the vintage was so bad. Uh, and I kept reading about wine. I bought the Revue de Vin de France. I was still very much a wine person. So it didn't take long. In the six months, you know, I, I began to know exactly what I, which direction I was going to go. And um, I think probably it took me two years, not more than that, to really get it sorted out, to get the Sancerre I wanted, the Puy Fumé I wanted, the the Bordeaux from pierre coste Chateau Bordeaux. The fashion was just beginning for the second wines of Chateau, so I did a lot with that. I was Marcel Guigard's first client in Paris in 1971, Beaucastel's first retail client in Paris. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Um and people who worked for me, Tim Johnson and Mark Williamson, became known as the Rhone Rangers because they were specialized in Rhone wine. This is back to 81, before it was really – Rhone really began to take off. And I'd worked for Jaboulet, Aene in 65, so I immediately started buying for them. Um, it, it, it was It was magic because wherever I went – wherever vineyard I visited, I went to visit with my wife, stay in wine regions for the weekend, go to recommended hotels. If I liked a wine on the wine list, I'd ask the hotel where they bought it from. They'd ring up, make an appointment for me to go and see them. And quite often after a weekend, there were two or three more wines to buy. So it really was um, nothing I'd ever expected, having been brought up in the English wine trade, to find myself doing. and I completely found my métier. I just loved it. And I knew I was good at it because I knew how to taste. Well, you let them taste before they buy, it, which was unusual, right? In the evenings, I mean, I, I mean, certainly if somebody came in during the day and said, "Could we taste the wine before we buy it?" I said, "No, that what that wasn't it." It's just the the Place La Concorde was full of the American law firms and and people like that, and they used to just come by in the evening. Not every evening, but they used to make it make Thursday evenings. said okay, Stephen. What's new? And then that was the Beginning of the idea of l'Académie du vin, because I was giving them the wine tastings, and of course talking them through the wines and and uh, one of them said, "You know, if you could ever put this on as, in a structured way, we'd love to do a wine course. You know, we don't know anything about wine. And so that got into my mind. and then prior to that, I'd met with John Winroth, who was the wine correspondent on The Herald Tribune. And I kept on sending him bottles that I liked of the note saying, this is Stephen Sparrier, I hope you like this wine. And then I went to see the three major caveats in Paris, not the grand shops like Fauchon, Vigelet, and Madeleine. They, I knew, were not in my league, or they were out of my league, and they wouldn't be in St. to please. So I went to see Jean-Baptiste Chaudet, who was up in the 5th, uh, Jean-Baptiste Beths, who was in the sixth, just below the Sorbonne, and Lucien Legrand, who was in the first, near the Place des Victoires. And much that I admired Jean-Baptiste Chaudet and Jean-Baptiste Bess, I knew I couldn't work with them because they were an older generation, and you know, I, I knew that I couldn't work with them, but I did buy wines from them, and I asked them whether I could write to the proprietors and say that I bought them in their shop and so on and so forth. With Legrand, I realized right away he was able, I was able to talk to him much more, although he was a generation older than me, um, much more on a not quite a one-to-one basis, but I was able to talk to him about wine. I didn't, I didn't really introduce myself as who I was earning a wine shop, but I went to the shop and we chatted a bit about wine, just, and I bought this and bought that. And on my way back from one of the visits to Le Grand Shop, I passed through Léal, which by that time, Léal was being taken away, the food belly of Paris, and I found outside a bookshop a copy of the book called A Connaissance du Vin by Constant Bocquin. And it was remaindered. It was being chucked out at 50 centimes. And I bought it. And that was a book which changed my life, wine life, entirely. Because Constant Borkan was a Swiss philosopher, and he was also an editor. He published books on art, and he was mad about wine. And he was a purist. And his view on wine, that any adulteration, any addition which wasn't strictly necessary like sulphur and like that, was the thin end of the adulteration wedge. And so he, one of the chapters was on non-dosed champagne, Brut Zero. One of the chapters was on non-chapitalized Beaujolais. One of the chapters was on this, that, and the other. And it was a chapter on non-dosed champagne, which really hit me. And Le Grand had a non-dosed Vouvray, sparkling Vouvray. Um, from Marc Bredif, and I knew that I wanted to see if we could get a non-dose champagne, and therefore Le Grand was the only conduit, and I said, I showed him the book, which he didn't know about, then I introduced myself as Calvin Madeleine, he said, yes, I've heard of you, You nice to meet you, and that kind of stuff. And I said, this is something I'd like to see if, if it can be done, and, and, and I'd like to do it with you if you agree. And he said, this is most interesting. So we went to his, one of his champagne suppliers, who were called Monsieur Legras in Chouilly. Uh, it was a premier crew Côte de Blanc at that time, just outside Epanay, And now it's a grand cru Côte de Blanc. And we went to see François Legras, who's still alive. Legras said, this is possible, but it's not commercial. Therefore, if I do this for you, you'll have to buy the whole cuvette. So I looked at Legrand and he said, well, he shrugged. And so we asked Mr. Legrand what he would recommend. And the recommendation we all agreed on was he had a very good premier crew Blanc de Blanc, which he called La Présidence. And so we took La Présidence vintage 66. And we made a dosage of La Présidence 59, a very rich, which was already dosé in itself, but it's basically not dosé. And the 59 was a rich vintage, so we were going to get the richness without the sugar. And he did that for us, and we tried it, and Legrand and I looked at each other and said, yeah. And so we agreed to buy the whole, the whole cuve, 600 bottles. And so... Le Gras disgorged the 66, topped it up with the 59. We let it rest for a month or so for the degorgement and the dosage to blend. And it came down to Paris, I think, in in April. Then we've had to find a name for it. And so I had the idea of, because when my wife and I first moved to Paris before we moved on to the barge, which we adored, just moored below the Pont de la Concorde. So it was very easy walk to work for me. Um, we lived in the Rue des Martyrs, which is in the 9th. But actually, then you cross the Boulevard de Clichy and you get into Pigalle, where all the strip shows were. And they advertised themselves as a new integral entirely naked. So I proposed to Legrand that we call this Brut integral entirely brute. And I sold it to my American friends as naked in its purity. Anyway, the name Brute integral we registered. And I had a very beautiful label designed for it with a bit of the stained glass from the cathedral in Reims. And um, off we went. And it was a huge success because it was Nouvelle Cuisine. And then we did a Brut Zero with Bon Air in Cramont. And then uh, as those two became fashionable, Legrand and I were the first people doing it. Then Piper Heitzig did something called Brut Sauvage, And someone else did something called Brut de Brut. And I said, well, these sound more like aftershaves than champagne. So to get back to John Winroth, I knew that this should interest him. He'd not replied to any of the wines I sent him. And so instead of just sending it, I went to the Herald Tribune offices in the Rue de Berry in the 8th. And I got in a tiny lift. I asked the desk where John Winroth worked. He said he's on the third floor. So I got out of the lift on the third floor. And there was a tall, thin gentleman going into the lift, and I said, "Sorry to bother you, but where can I find John Winroth?" He said, "I'm John Winroth." And I said, "Well, I'm Stephen Sperry. Oh, you're the guy who's sending me all these damn bottles." And I said, "I've got another one for you." He said, "Well, put it on my desk, and I'm going out to lunch. Let's go out to lunch." And so we went to a brasserie, and John and I stayed there two hours, two hours or so, drinking Beaujolais and got on like a house on fire. And he was teaching junior year students, American junior year students, about wine in the back of cafes. And I said, look, John, if, if, if I can find a premises, I think we could open a wine school together because you've got this junior year abroad program You speak fluent French, therefore we can do courses in French. I've got this American, Anglo-Saxon clientele. We have the clientele, and since we're starting from nothing, we can create what we're going to teach. He said, brilliant idea. And then, another bit of luck, the premises next door to the Cabin Madeleine came up for sale. It was a locksmith, and they had a big ground floor premises and a big office upstairs. And I was already expanding. This was um, October 72. I was already doing pretty well and then looking to expand. And I had a tiny office in the back of the shop. I really couldn't. I needed more space. And um, the locksmith shop went out for auction. No one was really bidding. We bought it. And so I took over the locksmith shop, had it entirely renovated and cleaned out, and opened l'Académie du Vin the first private wine school in France, opened by an Englishman and an American. Conducted in English at first. I think I think we did some right at the... We probably did a few lessons in December 72, but we did the structure. We began to get a six-session course called La Tour de France in January 73. And there was an American girl called Patricia Gallagher who had been to the shop. She was on the whole Tribune, and she'd been to the shop for the... Beauchlé Nouveau in 1971 and met me, and we got chatting. and She dropped by the shop every now and then. And then she dropped by, and I said, Patricia, the news is um, John Winroth, who she knew through the Tribune, and I are opening a wine school. Isn't that fun? And she thought a bit and said, But you guys need somebody to run it. And I said, Well, I hadn't thought about that. She said, Well, why don't you take me on? So Patricia became the director of the wine school, the Academy de which is very good because I was so occupied with the shop. And so that's how it began. I always say that L'Académie du Vin could not have happened without Michael Broadbent's book, Wine Tasting. Now, I knew Michael. I got to know Michael in 1966 when he reopened the Christie's wine auctions. And I used to go there, taste the wine, all that kind of stuff, and got chatting to Michael, who is my mentor. And absolutely, I mean, my absolutely admitted and admired mentor. And, um... Curious enough, he'd worked for Tommy Layton, uh, who was way, way in front of his, way ahead of his time. And he wrote how to books, which no one wrote how to books on wine. They were writing fancy books called The Wayward Tendrils of the Vine and Stay Me with and all this kind of stuff. Alexei Lachine, Andre Simon, and then Alexei Lachine were the first people to write informative books about wine. But Tommy Layton was before then, and he wrote how to books. And he had a wine bar opposite the British Museum. And actually, my mother, in her very early 20s, worked for him. And when she found out I was going into the wine business, she said, well, I was working in the wine business for a bit. This man, Tommy Layton, had a wine bar in Museum Street, opposite the British Museum, but it didn't last very long. I didn't think any more about it. And then in 1972... I was being entronisé as a, as a member of the Bonton du Médoc et de Grave. And I find myself standing in line next door to me was Tommy Layton, who, and I'd read all his books. And I knew he'd been Michael Broadbent's employer. So I introduced myself, and I said, I read all your books, and um, so on and so forth. And by the way... My mother said she worked for you in what would have been the mid to late 30s. But it didn't last very long. And he thought a bit, said, ah, I remember her. Pammy had to go. Far too pretty. <laughs> too many rich boyfriends. And so I relayed that next time I saw my mother when I was at home in Derbyshire. I said, mommy, you know, this is what Tommy said. Too many rich boyfriends. She said, well... Perhaps it was the glamour of the cars that used to collect me after my shift that caused the rather left-wing Tommy to object.
0: Oh, I so, see. So sure, Especially in that era.
1: Especially in that era, yeah. So when the Bugatti turns off and my glamorous mother, age 20, gets into it. I think. <laughs> so that was it. But anyway, back to La Cadre de Vain. it could not have happened without Michael Broadbent's book, which taught me how to taste in a structured way. And then in 82, when I came back to London, Michael asked me to open the, to create the Christie's wine course for him, which of course I created on the back of the Academy de Vin. So Michael's, Michael's at the start of it all. So Patricia
0: went to California at one point and took recommendations from Robert Finnegan and found some interesting wineries in California.
1: In his book, George Tabor calls her the scout, which she was indeed, as you said, she went to California first to scout out the wines. She'd met Robert Finnegan before. But actually, without my really paying attention, every 4th of July, uh, um, July 4th, 1974, July 4th, 1975, she'd scouted around Paris to try and find some California wines to give a tasting of California wines. And, of course, there was very little available. I mean, jug wine and screw caps, some Christian Brothers stuff. And she'd been really depressed. Well, not depressed, but she couldn't. She came over; her family came over in 1678 or something, and, and, and she was brought up in Delaware. She was very deeply American in the best possible sense, and she was proud of her country. So she wanted, and then she read read Maynard Amerine's book, which was the definitive guide to American wine. And then, people like Robert Finnegan and California, winemakers, and Alexis Bespeloff, who was the wine writer for the New York Magazine, came by, bringing the bottles. So we actually realized there was some very good wine coming out. And so Patricia said, i got vacation time. I'll extend my vacation. She was seeing her sister in Southern California. I'll go north to Napa, contact Robert Finnegan, and check it out. And so she comes back raving, you know, having already gone to Stag's Leave and Montalena and to, and to Spring Mountain and Vida Crest, not to, not to the whole lot, but enough. And she'd tasted Ridge. She hadn't been... Down there. So Patricia comes back with a potential list and she said, We've got to do this. And but she was thinking we've got to do it, we've got to give this tasting of the real stuff. And so I said, Patricia, that's absolutely great, but it's a new idea. It's a bit off the wall. We need a peg to hang it on. And she said the ideal peg is next year in nineteen seventy six will be the bicentennial of the American Declaration of Independence. And I said, well, that's not something we British normally celebrate because we lost the colonies, but okay, I'll go along with that. And so that was the peg. And then we progress and we begin to sign up the judges bit by bit. And time rolls around and my wife, Barbara, and I go to California in April. I think we went for Easter to make a final selection. So I went to everybody and we made a final selection. I made a final selection of six whites, six Chardonnays and six Cabernet Sauvignons. Fremark Abbey have one of each because I met Jerry Luper, who is the assistant winemaker there in Aix en Provence a couple of years before. And Jerry Luper helped me a lot. So I said, OK, you can have one of each. I went to Ridge. I remember ringing, calling Ridge on the telephone, and a guy answered. His name was Dave Bowney, one of the partners. I said, I'm Stephen Spire. I'd like to come down and taste your wine. It's for a tasting I'm going to give in Paris. He said, we don't receive journalists. I said, I'm not a journalist. I'm a wine merchant. He said, well, we don't sell to Paris. I said, well, I'm not thinking of buying it. I just want to buy two bottles. We're too busy. Don't come. So I drove down with my wife, and he saw the the car drive up and see the Englishman dressed in a suit, get out. He realized that this was a guy who called him. He said, oh, you're the guy who called. Well, since you've come all this way and I told you not to, you better taste the wine. And so we got Ridge, which eventually triumphed. It came fifth in 76, second in 86. I didn't do the 96, and it came first in 2006. Because you restaged the same tasting, the same wines yeah, right. in the future. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't do 96 because I didn't want to. So anyway, I make the final selection. And then I have this problem, how on earth do I get the wines into Paris? Because I'd had a problem with English wine, and this is just a sort of anecdotal story, but it's absolutely true, and it meant that I had to solve the problem. Um, Queen Elizabeth came to Paris in 1972 on her first official visit, and just before that, I received a visit from Sir Guy Salisbury-Jones, who was the owner of Hambledon, a small vineyard. And he had been attached to the embassy after the war. He was a major general. And he said he'd love to have his wine in my shop at the moment the Queen was there, and because he'd been at the embassy, and so on and so forth. And I said, that's a great idea. And it was a still wine, I think, made with the Madeleine Angevina, a still wine, white wine. And in a hock bottle. And uh, so I said, okay, send me 60 bottles. And he air freighted them to Orly because there was no wassi at the time. And I drive down to Orly. He gives me the documents. And I go into the customs shed. And I say, I've come to collect five cases of English wine. And they said, monsieur, c'est pas possible. I said, well, why is it impossible? They said, English wine does not exist. I said, "Well, it does," and I've got the documents for it. And actually, I can see the cases; they're right behind you. And they said, "No, we have no papers." In in the French legislation, English wine does not exist. It's not a product that exists. So, how can we move out of customs a product which does not exist? So, I thought about that, and I went back to my shop, and the newspapers were full of the visit of the Queen. So the following day, I went back in the morning, and the customs officer said, oh, Mr. Spurrier, encore vous. I said, yes, it's me again. And he shrugged and said, there's nothing I can do for you. I said, yes, and I know. And I said, because English wine does not exist. He said, that's what I've told you. Thank you for agreeing. And I said, well, does your job exist? He said, well, bien sûr, of course my job exists. I'm a customs officer. I said, do you like your job? He said, very much, sir. I said, well, in about half an hour, your job won't exist because these wines are going to be served at the British Embassy in front of your president tonight. boom, boom. boom. Every single document was stamped, and I went away with the wines. Of course, that was a complete lie, but he didn't know. So he said, ah, pour mon président, président bien sûr, bien sûr, pour mon président. But anyway, so I knew that... I couldn't run the risk again with 24 bottles, two bottles of 12 wines, you know, just trying to bring it back, just my wife and I. Because no one cared about Carter, really. You know, who yeah, cares but, if well, the well. survey to the American exactly. president? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, quite. But um, anyway, I'd met Joanne Dickinson, who was a, married to a lawyer in San Francisco, and also she organized wine tours. And she was organizing a wine tour with André Cheletjeff, the great André Chelytchef. and. Uh, we got chatting and I said, Joanne, I got a deal. I said, how many people are you in your group? She said, "There are 21. They said, there are 22 with me and 23 with my husband. I said, it's even better. It was like a tennis group too, right? It was wine and tennis tour. And, uh, I said, okay, here's the deal. I drop the wines off at your apartment and you, your group takes them over and you're allowed one bottle of each. They won't mind just the extra bottle. In exchange for which, as soon as your group hits Paris and you've checked in and you're relaxed, I will give you a free tasting of the best French wines I got in my shop. So that's what we did. I went to Roissy, then it was, Roissy, RoissyCgo to collect the wines. And um, I could see the wines on the the, the wines going around on the um, conveyor belt. And there was a little bit of red stain on one box. Anyway, one bottle of Fremark Ave had been broken. That was the only one. So 23 people, 23 bottles of wine. They brought them through. Otherwise, I would have not have gotten the wines in. So the wines are chosen. The judges, the top judges, nine judges, Obe de Villene from the Romney Conti, Pierre Tarry, the mayor of Margot, uh... Odette Kahn of the Revue du Vin de Vannes, France, Christian chef sommelier, the youngest chef sommelier ever in France, of the Tour d'Argent, the owner of um, Le Grand Verfort, Raymond Oliver, Michel Dovaz, who is Swiss, working for me, who wrote several wine books, Claude Dubois-Mio, who is Christian Meo's brother, go Mio, um, uh, Jean-Claude Vrignard from Talle Levant, and I've probably forgotten somebody. But anyway, fantastic judges. Uh, we'd got the Intercontinental because Ernst Van Damme, who was the F&B manager of the Intercontinental Hotel, just a few blocks away, thought it was a smashing idea. So we got, I was just looking for a private room. He gave us a terrace room on the terrace by the courtyard. He said, it's booked for a wedding party at six, as long as you're out of there by quarter to six, you can have it from three o'clock onwards. And so everything was booked. And about two weeks, maybe not even, before the tasting was going to happen. And we'd got the tasters... Purely because we wanted them to recognize the quality coming out of California. The whole thing was recognition. And then it occurred to me, with the exception of uh, Aubert de who who is married to a girl from San Francisco, none of them, subsequently I realized that Christian Vanicke had, had tasted California wine. But I thought none of the, the tasters would have ever tasted California wine before. And... Knowing that California was on the West Coast, somewhere north of Mexico, they might think of it as in the same way they think of southern Spain or southern Italy. And I couldn't run that risk. I couldn't run the risk of the wines being damned with faint praise. I needed them to be recognized, the quality which we knew they had. Patricia and I knew they had. So I said, Patricia, it's got to be a blind tasting. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, we're going to put in four of the best white burgundies, and four of the best red Bordeaux. And it's a blind tasting. And if we get a second and a fifth, or even just one in the top five, we've at least got the recognition these wines deserve. And so I chose a baton Montrachet from Rameneau, a Bon de Mouche from Drouin, a Pulini from Le Fleuve, Merceau Charme from Rouleau, all in the same vintages as, as the whites. That was easy. In the reds, the California vintures of 70, 71, and 73, the Stag's Leap, um, and 69, Fremont Abbey. So I put in uh, O'Brien 70, Mouton 70, Moreau 70, and Level las gas 71, which were uh, as classic as you could possibly get. Okay, everyone turns up. I put the names of the wine into a hat, and I ask the office girl to take him out of the hat in order, and we write, so the order of service was completely blind. And I didn't even know what, what the order of service was. And anyway, Patricia and I wrote our notes, but we weren't allowed to vote. And I said, well, welcome to everybody. Thank you for coming. I invited you to taste California wines, which indeed we will do. But I've thought of something that most of you don't know, California wines, and there's Chardonnays and Cabernet Sauvignons, and I thought it would be interesting to taste them against the best from Bordeaux and Burgundy. But this has to be a blind tasting. Do you agree? And if they said no, we couldn't have done it. But they said, but a problem. Uh, well, of course, why not? So the tasting goes on. And um, George Tabor from Time magazine was doing a wine course at L'Académie de Vin. And because he was American and the American wines, Patricia said, George, you ought to be there because you know, it's going to be interesting. You ought to be there. And he said, Well, if I have a slow day in the office, sure. He had a slow day in the office. And I said to my wife, who was working with a photographer at the time, I said, darling, you come and take the photographs. Just we need to have a couple of photographs. And so if George hadn't turned up, it would never have been written about. And if my wife hadn't turned up, there wouldn't have been any photographs. And George records it as the, the white California wines went down very well. And six judges put Montelina top, three judges put Chalon top. I thought Chardonnay was going to win. I put Ridge as my winner for the California Reds and Chardonnay as the winner for California Whites. Because it took a little time to to take away the glasses of the Whites and prepare the Reds, all the tasting notes with the marks out of 20 had been handed in. Uh, I'd got the results. So I read the results, and the judges were very severe. When we were marking on the 20-point scale, and in those days it started at naught. And one of the Chardonnays had become oxidized on the way over, and that got naught out of one judge, two out of another judge. So, so they were very severe when they found a wine which is not up scratch. Anyway, I read the results. Montelena first, then I think Marseille Charme, then I think Pellini, then Chalon, then Bonclet de Mouche and really quite far down the Batamarache. The judges were surprised, eyebrows were raised, they talked amongst themselves, they said, gosh. And then they said, well, the white Californians are really very good. But also I realized that they didn't want it to happen again. And so the red wines were poured, and it almost didn't happen until, in hindsight, I realized that they thought Stagsy was French. Uh, They were doing pretty well recognizing the Californian wines and marking them down but they didn't, they didn't get away with it on the stag's leaf and the ridge. A stag's leaf came top by a whisker, I think, one and a half points. It was 128 against 126.5. After Mouton, and then Aubriand, uh, then Moreau's, and then Ridge, and uh, then Les Velasquez, and California Wines the, the took the last four. And so when we read those results out, there was shock horror, that that they really were uh, to have California Chardonnay beat Burgundy, but to have California Cabernet Sauvignon beat the first growths, no way. Madame Khan asked for her notes back, and I said, Madame Khan, I'm sorry you can't have them back. She said, but they're my notes. I said, no, you agreed to take part in this. They're now L'Academy de Vin's notes. So she just stormed out. And then she wrote an article in the Revue de Vannes France damning the tasting, saying that the numbers had been rigged and so on and so forth. She never talked to me again except to, to be very angry with me and said I'd spat in the face of France, which I was accused of quite a lot. So that was the result. And um, I remember Patricia and I walked back and we gave ourselves a glass of champagne, probably Brut intégral, and said, well, that was, phew, didn't expect that, did we? I go home and read the children a good night story, and Bella says, "How do I say?" It? "Well, very odd. California wine's one in both categories. And then we talked about other things. You know, so the effect did not occur to either Patricia or myself, and it wasn't until George Tabor tracked the wine and tennis group down at Chateau Lascampbes, and he called Jim Barrett. And so there they are, all either on a terrace at Las Combes. 20 or 23 of them, and all the invited shadow owners to meet the great André Chalichev, and also there was Louis Martini, there were some great winemakers there. And so Champagne was on the terrace, Alexis Lachim was there because it was Chateau Lascamp, and call for Jim Barrett. So he thinks, oh, my God, something's happened at home. Takes the call, and um, Joanne Dickinson went in with him, and all she could hear was, yeah, yeah, is that right? Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, thanks. Rang up, and uh, he then turns to Joanne with a smile as Joanne recorded it as big as a bottle of Chardonnay, and said, "We won the tasting." But of course, he couldn't say that at lunch, so he gets in, and Louis Martinez says, "Jim, nothing wrong at home." He <laughs> said, "Nothing wrong at home at all." And um, bit by bit, it's whispered around the room, and but no word gets out. And at the end of lunch. Alexei Lichin gets up and says how wonderful it is to have Andrei Cherechev there and his fellow winemakers, and uh, he knows that California is making good wine, and in a few years they might even make great wine. And said might even make wine up to the quality of the wines you've been having today at my chateau, right? And so they. Wine and tennis group get back on the bus and they go completely crazy, like a kind of junior team which has just beaten the sort of Red Sox or something, and they hug each other and scream. So that was, that was how it got out. And then the word got out. And once we knew the word had got out, uh, George Tabor, Patricia rang Warren when he asked he, who said, yeah, 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 that's that's nice, nice. Warren didn't realize either what the effect was going to be. Since later, he called it a Copernician moment, and we never thought the same after that, which is absolutely true. But then it got out in the press and so on and so forth. Um, I've now realized that if the tasting had been held with 10 wines in front of each taster, 10 glasses... It might not have happened like that. Certainly with the Reds, it would not have happened like that. But it was glass by glass, so they couldn't go back, which was normal at the time. People didn't give wine tasting, so, you know, if you were at a wine tasting, you had one glass. That's it. So it wasn't that I was trying to trick them. It's just it's only occurred to me, writing it down in my memoirs, that today it would have been 10 glasses, and you would have gone backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. It might have happened like that. But I think that the fact that judges had to record their first impressions and then second impressions, but they weren't comparing glass by glass, I think that was in favor of the California Reds. Well, It was certainly in favor of the very fresh and really fruity Stagsley That was from three-year-old Vines. Uh, and Ridge was in the European style anyway, because Paul Draper had worked at Latour. It was very much, and I tried to choose California wines which are in the European style. And people say, why wasn't there any Robert Mondavi? Why wasn't there any Bolio Vineyards? Why wasn't there any Buena Vista? I said, first of all, I was looking for boutique family-run wineries, and I wasn't looking for the big guys. When you look at your
0: scorecard, which wasn't part of the tabulation because you stayed out of it, you gave the Reds tie, four-way tie, to French, to California. So
1: it wasn't like you were a heavy partisan either way, really. I couldn't make up my mind, and I honestly wasn't trying to see which was California, which was not. I mean, I think Fremont Abbey was definitely Californian because it was showing the heat, and that came bottom and Vida and Marcamas would have struck me as not being French. I was judging, that's just the way I always have judged wine, just on what it tells me, what the glass is, is telling me.
0: And it seems to me, looking back at that 40 years later, that the real result, I don't know what it was like for you personally, but for the wine world, it seems to me that the big takeaway was that from then on, anything was possible, and you couldn't just assume what were good wines. Really, anything from anywhere could eventually become acknowledged to be a great one.
1: All the tasters um, got a really hard time. Uh, and uh, Pierre Tarry was asked to resign of Mero of Margot. Madame Bise-Leroy almost tried to kick Aubert out of the Domaine la Romani-Conti. Jean-Claude Rigno was asked to resign his presidency of the Cirque, the restaurateur, all that kind of stuff. No one, until we redid it 30 years on. Until that moment, even though I'd heard rumors, None of the tasters ever told me what a bad time they'd had because they'd recognized it had been honestly run. So they had a bad time. But as Aubert said, it was a much-needed kick in the pants for French wine. And the bright people, instead of whinging and saying, this shouldn't have happened, blah, 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 you know, what the Californians think, what does Spurrier think he's doing, the bright people went to California to see what's going on. It's no coincidence that the first vintage of Opus One was 1979. It was after the event. And what's the kick in the pants of French wine? I mean, Jancis Robinson said that time and time again had I not been responsible, this tasting had not been responsible for the first chink in the French armor of the complete dominance of French wine. And the wines were, you know, if France was, was not on top form at that time. Uh, it would have taken much longer. And what The real thing, the real importance of the judgment of Paris, of course vitally important for California and for other American wines, was that it created a template whereby unknown wines of quality could go up against known wines of quality, judged blind, and if the judges were of quality themselves, the opinions of the judges would be respected. I guess the
0: only question I've had, I mean, I've had a few, but one that's lingered over time about the Paris tasting is why the Cabernet Chardonnay focus. I get that there's great wines in the world made from those, but at the time, California had more diversity of other grape varieties than it does today.
1: Of course, they had Zinfandel, and they were planting, I mean, a lot of wineries planted just about everything they could get hold of. But Chardonnay was the major white grape, and Cabernet Sauvignon was the major red grape. If Patricia and I were going to take wines back to Paris, we couldn't take Zinfandel. There would have been no point. I mean, that, that's, you know, they, well, if, if, however, which wasn't our plan, we could have given them a tasting of six different California red wines, they would say, gosh, isn't it? What, aren't California wines varied? Isn't it wonderful? They've got syrup and they've got petite syrup. Uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't our mindset. We wanted Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon.
0: What were some of the immediate ramifications of that tasting?
1: Well, there sort of weren't, except that I began to stock California wines, which at that point were not expensive. And then they became expensive. Then the French franc dived against the dollar and so on and so forth. But I was the first person to stock quite California wines in Paris. So that was right away in 1976. Uh, I went to California in 77, San Francisco, to do the tasting again at the Vintners Club with much the same results. I became friends with Warren Winniasky. I met Robert Mondavi, which was very, very nice, and and he showed me what he was doing. And then I went back to California really almost every year and uh, became an habitué at Ed Moose's Washington Square Bar and Grill. And I challenged his softball team to my, I didn't have a softball team, but I, we ended up playing softball in Paris. Uh, I was discussing with Ed. I said, Ed, you've got this restaurant. By that time, I'd bought the Moulin du Village, which was a restaurant up the street from me, where I was going on to lunch when I first saw the shop. And I said, Ed, you know, there must Ed was in Paris. And I said, there should be some kind of forks across the sea. You know, you've got a restaurant, I've got a restaurant. We ought to do something. He said, um, why don't we play softball? I said, splendid. What's softball? So, <laughs> so it's the game which we knew as rounders. <laughs> so, anyway, Ed Moose's team came over to play my team softball. Not that I had a team; I made it up of people who could play cricket. And I got a couple of Marines from the embassy. And Ed said, "No, no, no, they're too young." <laughs> but anyway, but I went to the Bar and Grove quite often and met a lot of I met the Jordans of Jordan Winery and and so I was really spending a lot of time in California. I went to the Monterey Wine Festival. And then I began to get invited to sit on tasting panels, all that kind of thing. So what the Judge of Paris did, it sort of internationalized me. I mean, that's certainly what growing up in America, I heard about you yeah. for.
0: So what about the career at Decanter? How did that get started? And it was
1: um, well, there's a lot of water on the bridge between that and now. Nah, so in 1981. My wife and I moved to New York because I was actually I've I was getting a bit bored, and my daughter told me the other day. She said, "Your problem, Dad, is that you're bored with the present," and I'm afraid she's right. Uh, I get bored very easily. Um, once I feel I've done something, it's time to do something else. So I couldn't. We couldn't go back to London. I was well known. People were telling me how brilliant I was. And so I went to New York to open a wine school there, L'Academy de Vint. Well, that was a total failure. There's no point in getting into why it was. Uh, it cost me a fortune. It was an absolute murderous time. and My wife has never set foot in New York since. Um, and anyway, we then could get back into our house in 82. Michael Broadbent gets wind of the fact I'm coming back, saying I have always wanted to have a wine school, a wine course, I've never had time to do it, blah, blah, blah. So in October 82, we opened the Christie's Wine Course, and Michael teaches the first course. I introduced Michael, and it was an immediate success. Um, so that was the Christie's Wine Course. But then I kept the businesses in Paris. By that time, I'd expanded into a warehouse with Le Grand, Lucien Le Grand, outside Paris called the Chemin des Vines. I'd bought a restaurant. I'd opened a wine bar at La Défense, where all the business had gone, with Michael Lickerman. The shop was doing well, but not as well as it had been, because IBM, which is one of my great client base, had moved to La Défense. Basically, President Mitterrand had kicked most of the American banks out of Paris. So my basic clientele was disappearing, and other people were coming up. There were other wine shops who were doing what I was doing, And La Caterpie de Vin was to doing quite well, and there wasn't any real problem. And so I was bored, so I began to write some books. So I wrote the first book was French Country Wines, which I dedicated to my dog, the only wine book in history dedicated to a dog, in my view. Then the publishers wanted a how-to book, so we wrote La Caterpie de Vin wine course, it sold 150,000 copies, which is unheard of these days, unheard of. And it was the first how-to book. So we put all the Academy of Divine Wine courses, all my knowledge, and Michel Dovas helped, and his girlfriend at the time, Yolo de Potex, helped on the wine and food matches. That was a huge success. Then I wrote French fine wines. Then I wrote the Academy of Divine Wine Cellar book, which was basically a potboiler. Um, by that time, the Bistro Avant had been sold. I was just a minor partner, and the Moulin du Village was doing very badly. I had a crooked American partner um, who just stole from it, and I'm not a restaurateur. And so, by the by, eighty five things were beginning to fall apart quite a lot, and that will all come out in my memoirs. But um, I eventually, in eighty eight, sold up. I sold the restaurant to Mark Williamson for one franc, and the purchaser takes on the debts. I did the same to my businesses, which I then had my own warehouse outside Paris, and I sold that to a group called the Rupert Backers for one franc, and they took on the debts, but they never actually paid the debts, so that was a setback. Um, I've had a huge amount of money stolen from me because, because I trust people. So basically, I went bust in Paris. Uh, I had to, I went bust for my own fault, but it wasn't my own fault. I didn't get paid, uh, and so I was back in Paris in 1989, 90, uh, recouping. I really got the job with Singapore Airlines as a consultant with Anthony Dars Blue and Michael Smith. The books were still showing a little bit of residual income. The Wine Course, because his Wine Course was showing a bit of residual, but I had to, I had to really get down to. Re-earning money, and I wrote articles for various magazines. Then I got a job at Harrods. I got a job running the Harrods wine department, which really needed help. It was run by two masters of wine, and they were not doing a great job. And so I took it over, and in six months, completely revolutionised it uh, with many, many Harrods own label wines. The problem. Then became, as has been a problem all my life, which um, is, is either a good problem or a bad problem, but it does cause problems, I became so well-known as the Harrods, the new guy in Harrods that I was advised by somebody in the advertising department and I created the, the Harrods wine list was bigger than it had ever been before and I got some of the suppliers to pay for it. And so somebody in the advertising department said, Stephen, you, you really revolutionized this department. You should sign the wine list. I said, sure, why not? I didn't realize that broke an unwritten rule in Harrods. There was Mr. Fish, Mr. Meat, Mr. Cheese, and Mr. Whatever. And they were unknown. They never put their heads above the parapet. And while Mr. Al-Fayed was benefiting from the success of his wine department, I made myself more famous than hid. I was sacked after the Christmas rush. I was told to go. (laughs) And they took on the guy from Fortnum & Mason, Alan Griffiths. And when I began, I wrote a report to Al-Fayed, and I said, the most successful wine department in London is at Fortnum & Mason, and I'm going to base the Harrods Wine Department on that. So when he sacked me, he got the guy from Fort Mason. <laughs> anyway, I'd got to know Sarah Kemp. She would just joined the counter. She wasn't the head of it. She was just, you know, I think an an editor. And I knew them, and I'd maybe I hadn't written anything for them. I remember meeting, or Sarah remembers, meeting me at a party in sort of early 1992 and said, Stephen, how are you enjoying life at Harrods? And I said, well, sir, I'm not enjoying it at all because I've been sacked. He said, great, you can come and work for me. So that was another bit of luck. And that really was uh, the 70s were a very lucky decade for me. The 80s were, I think, unlucky, and the 90s re-became lucky. (laughs) And so joining the team at Decanter was really the best thing that ever happened to me you know, at that time in my life. And I had my own visiting cards called Stevens Barrio Wine Consultant. Very soon, I didn't have my own cards. I had the Recounter card. And the Recounter hat, I've worn ever since. And um, Sarah has been absolutely wonderful. She's turned counter into something which never even, it could never have imagined itself to be. So you're about to write your memoirs. And in the future, because you're still a young man, really,
0: <laughs> what do you think you'd like to achieve going forward?
1: I mean, my memoirs are called Wine and Way of Life. The family money permitted me to turn wine into way of life. Uh, I cannot say that, that, that I've been a good uh, looker after of the money that I inherited through my family, but I've at least had a very interesting life, and I think I benefit a lot of other people who have been around me. Um, my, I have several aims. I'd like to see Bride Valley, we're making very good wine, but we don't make enough of it. So I'd like to see that become self-sufficient. Even though we're selling at the same price as Champagne, our quantities are really low. So global warming is, hasn't quite come to, to South Dorset. Um, so I'd like to see Bride Valley sustainable because I'm very proud of having created that from scratch. I mean, I knew we had chalk soil. I knew we had lovely sloping, sloping land, which would be okay. So that is, it's the last roll of the Spurrier dice investment wise. But I'd rather, I'm moving towards wanting to be an observer rather than a player. And um, my daughter Kate wants me to retire and I said, Kate, I can't retire. A, I, I need the money, but B, you know, people ask me to do things and I like doing them. So I cannot consider totally retiring. I'm seventy-five, so I give myself five years. Sarah Kemp says, you know, carry on writing for the counter as long as you want. Michael wrote his last column at eighty-five, I think I think another five years writing for the counter and being with the decanter team and wine's never not going to be part of my life, but I so much like it. I'd like to be an observer, not quite a background observer. People always know who I am, and, of course, it's it's nice to be known. It was quite a burden uh, in the earlier years, but, you know, hi, Stephen, how are you? And I, now I'm meeting people's grandchildren. Ah, oh, my f- grandfather knew you, that kind of thing. And so it, it's very nice being known in, in a segment of life where one has been all one's life and being known and respected and, and liked. So you know, I'm not going to slam the door. I'm not going to slam the door on what I'm doing, but I can feel myself stepping back. I'm stepping back mentally, if not quite day by day. Wine has been a
0: big part of Stephen Spurrier's life and he's helped others make it a big part of theirs. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Mr. Stephen Spurrier, Contributing Editor Emeritus for Decanter Magazine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs... This episode was made possible by VinItaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.